of my favorite murder where they talk about how they do a little prayer circle before they go out on stage every time oh yeah and yeah. i'm trying to remember when they talk about it they like i feel like they praise geico or something like <laughs> for one like they're like and praise be to geico i don't know I, it's just i remember a, a it being something really uh that the church wouldn't like <laughs> yeah well i'm sure yeah but i really enjoy it yeah do you want to um tell people where they are yeah Welcome, friends, loved ones, Romans, newcomers, countrymen. <laughs> Did you say plumbers? No, I said newcomers. Newcomers. Okay, that makes a lot more sense than plumbers. I mean, probably maybe one of the people who listens to this is a plumber too, but... Yeah, why not? Maybe Mario and Luigi are listening to this too. <laughs> maybe. Maybe not. Um, did you actually say where they were welcome to or did we... Did we forget that I got, part. we got distracted um so okay. wait hold on one second there's gonna be like a lot of background noise today i just know it that's fine um so welcome to cool story your favorite podcast with your friends matt that's me and n that's that's me <laughs> that's you <laughs> that's them that's me um and it's the podcast uh, where we are recapping Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time, and we are on book two, The Great Hunt. And last time we left off, we finished on chapter six, which was called Dark Prophecy, and it ended with um, sort of the attack on Faldara and Rand trying to find Egwene, who had been injured in the attack, and like Rand is... Uh, they're saying, hey, you can go anytime. Don't worry about it. And he's trying to decide what to do. And that's kind of where the last chapter left off. Okay. And here we are. Uh, chapter seven is called Blood Calls Blood. And I believe the sigil was just the Wheel of Time itself. And Was that the shortest introduction we've ever done? We have. We didn't do a lot of, uh, a lot of chat. No, not a lot of chit chat. No, we kind of. It'll, it'll probably come up in the chapters, I'm sure. Yeah, I think you know what it was. We were having so much technical. Well, let me rephrase that. I was having so much technical difficulty on my end, and then I was having paranoia about the noise, and then it was a lot of that stuff at first. Yeah, and uh, we're also just highly professional, um, like you know, not journalists. Practically, media. We're like one step away. Yeah, media personalities. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One one small step away from hardcore journalism. Maybe. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so really we're just, you know, trying to get down to business and, and give you the content that you're looking for. Exactly. So But soon I will I'm sure that I will uh, have a charmed reference to throw in there just any minute. So And I'm sure it'll here we it'll go. have to do with the dream sorcerer. <laughs> um probably. <laughs> Speaking of dream sorcerers, Moiraine, who is not a dream sorcerer begins this chapter uh she is wrapping up an angriol is that how you say it i say angriol oh i like that way better okay she's wrapping up an angriol okay. um which we remember earlier was uh the sort of it's made of ivory i think right usually mm -hmm. and it's carved to oh it, it doesn't matter oh okay well i think 
the one we saw was ivory or something, but the it's basically carved into like a little shape. It seems to be usually be a human figure of some sort, and the Aes Sedai can use them to uh, channel more powerful magic. It seems like like healing and that's right and things like that. So she's got her angriel and uh, she's wrapping it up, and Matt is being carried out of the siege chambers. Uh, followed by Leanne, four Aes Sedai, including the Amerlin and Varin, who remained in the room, had just finished a long, strenuous, and seemingly, I think, incomplete, well, yeah, incomplete because they don't have the dagger, healing ceremony of sorts on Matt, but since they don't have the weapon, it only basically buys him some time. Um, it doesn't unbind him from it. So it buys him about three months maximum, I think they, they estimate, and... Oh, is that what they said? I believe so. Yeah, I think someone said it, it'll okay. it'll give them, you know, nine weeks or something like that or whatever three months are. I, I don't feel like doing math. Twelve? Anyway, so uh, <laughs> what's nine weeks? Nine weeks, nine weeks is, is two and a uh, half months. It's just over two months. Pathetic. It's two months and a week. Um, I, I'm humiliated that I, I couldn't do weeks into months right now. It's a, it's a strange day. That's okay. It's the day after the 4th of July. So they... Listen, you, you had a lot of technical issues you had to work through. So you have full permission to um, mess up words and things. I did. I'm like... And, and um, be bad at math. I'm like an Android on the fritz right now. Like, not an Android phone. Like, an old Android in, uh, like, an 80s in the Jetsons. sci-fi movie. Um, so the... I said I know that Lord Egomar... Do you say Egomar or Agomar, by the way? I say Agomar. I like Agomar better. I'm going to say Agomar and let the fans correct us. It's too it's too unnatural for me to say Agomar at this point. So they know Lord Agomar has sent men to retrieve the horn and suppose that the dagger won't be far. And so they know they have to get that dagger if Matt has any chance of survival. But Moraine is silently pondering what Matt's purpose in weaving in the weaving will be now that the horn is gone. They also know that they have to find Padan and discover, like, what is his true importance in this whole plan? Like, what is his part in the whole weaving of the wheel? Because he's obviously way right. more important than anyone anticipated, even, you know, a couple, a month ago or so. So the trio of them also know that Matt is the best candidate to retrieve the dagger, but can he does he have the ability the risks and dangers um <laughs> surrounding it are all discussed and before uh Varen leaves the other two alone she lets them know the translations that she saw scrawled in Trolloc's tongue um in human blood in the dungeon from the last last section and they appear yeah. to be dark prophecies and so rather than summarizing them i'm just going to read uh a little bit of what was on the wall. She's translating for them. Daughter of the night, she walks again, the ancient war she yet fights, her new lover she seeks, who shall serve her and die, yet serve still. Who shall stand against her coming? The shining wall shall kneel. Blood feeds blood, blood calls blood, blood is and blood was and blood shall ever be. The man who channels stands alone. He gives his friends for sacrifice. Two roads before him, one to death beyond dying, one to life eternal. Which will he choose? Which will he choose? What hand shelters? What hand slays? Blood feeds blood. Blood calls blood. Blood is and blood was and blood shall ever be. Luke came to the mountain of doom. 
Isam waited in the high passes. The hunt has now begun. The shadows hounds now course and kill. One did live and one did die, but both are. The time of change has come. Blood feeds blood. Blood calls blood. You know, blood, 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 etc. Uh, <laughs> the watchers wait on Toman's head. The seed of the hammer burns the ancient tree. Death shall sow and summer burn before the great Lord comes. Death shall reap and bodies fail before the great Lord comes. Again, the seed slays ancient wrong before the great Lord comes. Now the great Lord comes, etc., etc. And it goes on with the blood thing again. Blood, blood, blood. Blood, blood, blood. Blood, there will be blood, basically. This movie, the movie There Will Be Blood was inspired by all the blood in uh, this trollic tongue. Is that the movie where the actor says, I drink your milkshake, I drink it up? I believe so, but I always confuse There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. And I believe, just because they were serious movies that I think were violent, had a mostly male cast and came out around the same time. But uh, I don't know which one is which. I think it's There Will Be Blood. I'm going to go on the record. I think so, too. And I've never never seen the movie, but I like the... I drink your milkshake, I drink it up. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's That will explain the limitations of me knowing whether, where, where it came from. Perfect. I would love a milkshake right now, also, by the way. It's right very now, warm. Basically, oh, it's very warm. And basically, Padan Fane is saying that his milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. <laughs> and by the boys, he means Rand Perrin and uh, Matt. Damn right. I could, I could teach you, but I have to charge probably your life. So... What do you think it means, Matt? Well, I don't think I know what all of it means yet. They kind of explain who they believe the first passage to be speaking about. And then the man who channels alone, I mean, I would imagine that's Rand. And he gives his friends for sacrifice. And so, and it says there's two roads. One is death beyond dying and life eternal, which will he choose? So I'm assuming that he's going to have a choice at some point, if if all goes according to this prophecy, if that's indeed what this is, that he will have a choice at some point where he'll have to sacrifice the lives of himself and his friends in order to save the world or you know prevent mm-hmm. the breaking of the world. And the other option will be life eternal, but it would you know cause him to be on the dark side. So I'm guessing that that's to happen or i'm guessing that's what's prophesized is that the dragon who would be rand would have to sacrifice himself and apparently his friends um to save the world and i guess in like two minutes they have a whole conversation about this so i didn't necessarily need to ask you your predictions (laughs) well i mean it's good It, it yeah so they're carefully choosing their words as they're talking about the text and what its importance is and varin mentions that the daughter of the night must be lanfier is that how you say it I say land fear. Okay. Um, it's kind of like land with fear attached, land attached fear. to the end. Okay. I feel like it's probably land fear, but I'll go with land fear for now. Well, I will just look up a pronunciation real quick. Right, because I feel like keep going. land fear sounds more like Wheel of Timey. But anyway, she says, Daughter of the Night must be land fear. Not much is recorded about her, but she is thought by many to be the most powerful forsaken. And she was LTT's lover before Ilya. Iliana. Iliana. The two other Aes Sedai aren't sure who Isam is or his connection to Luke. My guess is that they are... Um, we, well, we know. We know who Isam is, right? Isam was... We do. ...who um, was in the story when we were learning about who Lan really was. So Isam yes. and Luke, we, we, we know who they are. These, and it is Lanfear. Lanfear? 
Yeah, I'm disappointed, but it's okay. Sorry. I, I accept defeat. So um, I'm assuming that this is also just referring to like when the horn is sounded, we're supposed to believe that ancient heroes are supposed to rise from the grave in some fashion. And so I'm mm-hmm. assuming that that's what this is referring to. Moraine knows who, who he is, but she just keeps it from Lan for now because she doesn't want to cause unnecessary um, tension or fear or anything like that. Um, before, because of the small communities that still exist on Toman Head and Hawkwing being known as the Hammer of Light, Varen suggests that his armies may finally be returning. Varen continues on saying that if only the sea of, if only the sea folk across the Arith Ocean weren't so tight-lipped about what's happened over there, where the armies of Night reign, then they'd know more. And you know, when I read that, I was like, I don't know what any of this even means. Uh, but then she goes on, thank God, and um, she says, Now, the ancient tree, there have always been rumors, no more than that, that while the nation of Almuth still lived, they had a branch of Avendasora, perhaps even a living sapling. And the banner of Almuth was blue for the sky above, black for the earth below, with the spreading tree of life to join them. Of course, Tarabonners call themselves the Tree of Man, and claim to be descended from rulers and nobles in the Age of Legends. And Domani claim descent from those who made the Tree of Life in the Age of Legends. There are other possibilities, but you will note, Mother, that at least three center around Almuth Plain and Toman Head. A lot of words, hard to pronounce in there. And so you did great. You're you. doing great, um, sweetie. Thank you. Uh, the Amarillin tells her it's probably time to go before she gets upset. <laughs> and Varen, <laughs> um, and Varen lets uh, lets it escape that she knows that Moraine is with a boy who can channel. The yep. <laughs> the two blue Aja. This is such a cool scene to me. That's in in the way I'm imagining at least. So the two blue Aja, the Amarillin and Moraine. Uh, simultaneously channel the source and Mm -hmm. they do this because Varen is now sort of a liability because yep she she knows what's going on in some more than they want her to know more than anyone else seems to know so if um if she believes this to be true then why isn't she turning them in it seems to them that she really just does want answers um which isn't uncommon for someone she's brown aja right yes so that's really seems in line with what brown aja are all about seekers of truth and and uh history so she's kind of like a voyeur you know she just wants to watch she just she's just interested (laughs) and so she assures them that no one else knows and they trust her intent so they stand down for now at least and she sits and tells them what she knows and how long um, which is the whole time essentially and Moraine sadly thinks of what she has to do to the woman who snuck them sweet cakes as little girls. Then we are shifting. Yes, because they basically like they only can they can either choose to trust her or they can kill her. Right, and it's like in previous chapters mentioned, I believe, alluded to the fact that they knew her as little girls, and then when they say things like that, like how sad, you know, to think I might I've trusted you all this time, you're not someone I'm against, and I might have to defeat you, and I have no choice, and then I just have to move on. Right. You know, and then yeah. I guess probably For the cover it up. Good. <laughs> and so yeah. we are now um, shifting to a Perrin perspective, which thrills me beyond all belief because it's been a very long time. It hasn't, we haven't seen him in this book yet, right? His perspective. So, no, we haven't. He yeah. is sneaking around a corner <laughs> looking for a food. Um, 
<laughs> he is sneaking around a corner, looking at the guarded infirmary door. Um, when he has a chance, he sneaks in and sits carefully next to Matt's sleeping body. Someone enters and shouts for Leandrin to be summoned, which scares him, but lucky for him, it's Leanne. He's still worried and uneasy, but she says that if Matt's disturbed at all, he's in huge trouble and he better leave and he'll recover on his own and don't worry about it. But he doubts her. Matt doesn't seem right and smells somehow wrong to him, which we know um, from last book. If you haven't been following, Perrin has a um, heightened sense of smell and other wolf-like traits. And so... Attributes? Attributes, yeah. Characteristics? Some. Sure. Eyes. Um, Hunger for flesh. I made that part up. So Matt doesn't seem... He's hungry like a wolf, basically. (laughs) I love that song. So does anybody not love that song? Hungry like the wolf? I I don't know. I don't want to not. It's kind of universally loved, I think. I agree. It's like Take On Me. Like you just No, I don't I don't I don't want to know Oh, who doesn't love Take On Me? That's one of the best songs of all time. Exactly. That's how I feel like Hungry Like the Wolf is. Yeah. For me, Aha is far, far, far above Hungry Like the Wolf, but it's good. Okay, I you know. Hungry Like the Wolf. That's what Perrin is. That's what I am for Perrin. Sure. There's this so he smells he smells wrong to him. He doesn't seem right. He doesn't trust what the Aes Sedai is saying. So as he leaves, he notices that she is looking at him and then she grabs his face and looks directly into his eyes. And a warm and and I quote, a warm ripple that started at the top of his head ripples to his feet, then comes back again. Then came back again. Um and I was like, Oh, first of all I was like, ooh la la, because that sounds like mm-hmm. a very exciting <laughs> sensation like when you bite into your yes. peppermint patty or take a bite of five gum <laughs> or like um when you bite on something that's like a little too sour and like your whole head kind of does that like feeling behind oh. your ears sort of thing yes yes and then the back of your mouth see that's like an actual sensation i was referring to um sensations that commercials would like you to believe will happen <laughs> That oh, will never like, happen. Basically, like you chew like gum right and you're Perrin skiing. is washing his hair. <laughs> he's he's washing his hair with herbal essences right yes. now. Exactly, exactly. So he has this feeling of like dread, obviously. Like, oh my gosh, she just noticed. She just noticed my eyes and she knows. He has he has just the same amount of paranoia that um Rand has. He holds it a little closer to yeah. the to the vest. So um <clears throat> I'm guessing that when she does that, when she does this, though, um, I think it's more than just a sensation. I think she did something to him. I'll just spoil it for you because it's not that big of a spoiler. But basically, she like channeled to check out that there was nothing wrong with him. Oh yeah, I guess that sort of makes sense because then then the next thing she would was saying to him was, "You're as healthy as a young wild animal, but if you were born with those eyes, I am a white cloak." And so, yeah, it's mm-hmm. simultaneously. I see. I didn't even get that from reading that. Like, you're as healthy as a wild animal. I thought she was just saying that to sort of let him know, without saying it out loud. Like, I know what you are, because I know that the Isidai don't love. From what we know, at least, the Isidai don't love this um, wolf brother. Let's call it type of yes. um, experience because they don't understand it. It's like from ancient times, and it. It, they don't know where it comes from, whether it's good or bad. And so they just, they're not fans. So she does this to him and he lifts her up with ease and puts her to the side of him and bids her a good day on his way out. 
And I was like... Simultaneously being like an, an oaf, but also being polite. Right. But I actually loved this moment because it's like the boys right now, with the exception of Matt, who's like, you know, obviously in, in peril, but uh, the boys are so tentative and so careful and so vulnerable right now. And it's like just the first time one of them just did something not to one another, but to like an ice in front of an ice Sedai or someone that was just like, I know I'm supposed to be afraid of you, but I'm, I'm getting out of here. Goodbye. You know? Yeah. They, um, this is like the first time that they've, they like haven't been super compliant because exactly. they spent the entire first book basically being afraid and doing whatever Moraine said. Yeah, being afraid, doing whatever she says, and then as soon as they got to Tarvalon, it's like fear, you know? And I don't blame them. I mean, they're surrounded by things that they've only read about and seen happen through Moraine, you know? And they know that Moraine is... They believe Moraine might be one of the good guys, but they know that not all of them are. So, yeah, I just loved a moment where it wasn't mayhem and panic and pandemonium and... I. I I'm going to sneak out and, you know, if this was Rand, he would have curled up in a ball like a pill bug and rolled his way past her and apologized for being in the room. So (laughs) anyway, speaking of Rand, we go back to a new perspective and it's Rand. Um, He is stirring, having trouble resting, and then Perrin enters. He's still pissed about everything Rand said previously when he was going on his little uh, hissy fit, trying to push people away, if we remember. And he is being passive aggressive to him, which just makes me like Perrin a little bit more. Um, I love a good passive aggression, (laughs) a good good active passive aggression. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Don't all jump at once, everyone out there who knows me. And so... (laughs) I, I, you know, I don't blame him at all. Rand was a total monster. Um, Rand says he didn't mean it, but he, he really can't tell him why he can't take them with him still, but he just can't. He can't take them with him on his journey. He can't explain it. He just says, I can't take you with me. And so he tries to joke and sort of make it better, but Perrin's not about it and he leaves and he's still visibly pissed. Uh, Lan enters afterwards wearing the sign of Malkir, a golden crane in flight, and the knot of a golden cord on his arm. Do we know what the golden cord means? Um, you know what? I kind of, I don't remember if that's meant to symbolize something. I feel like, okay, I I feel like in my next chapter something happens with the gold cord, so to, to be continued, we'll see. Um, and so yeah. the Amerlin requests an audience... And he had better get dressed and go, according to Lan. Lan finds him a red-sleeved coat with golden herons embroidered on the collars. He seems pretty self-satisfied, which leads me to believe that he knows exactly where Rand is from and that he is dressed accordingly, in my opinion. He gives him um, some great Mm -hmm. advice about how to act, and it's like a very, like, big brother, little brother moment, I felt like. Um, Yeah. And then I wrote down, like, I wrote down dad and son. Can you imagine if Lan is actually the father of Rand and he just has something about him like the Aes Sedai do where he's like ageless? Could you imagine the twist? Mm. I know. Do you think? Uh, I don't think so, truly, but I thought it would be fun, you know? Because we don't really know. Okay. We know who Lan is, but, you know, Lan is still shrouded in mystery as far as, like, how he behaves and acts as a uh, opposed to other warders, you know? Um so yeah. who knows? yeah, he could be a lady killer and have a million babies out there. Who knows? He, you know, hello. Maybe that's why he's always so quiet. Yeah, he's, he's not trying to incriminate himself. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want to be brought on Maury. 
Who does? That's actually why he's always wearing the color shifting cloak is so that oh. he can av- avoid all of his uh, his <gasps> former children or his oh uh, his uh, illegitimate children, I guess. And you know what? And he really, truly loves Nynaeve for real. And that's why he can't be with her because he's so ashamed of who he is. And he knows he's not he's not good enough. Yeah. And he doesn't want Nynaeve to know about her 47 stepchildren. Exactly. Or, you know, maybe contract something. Just saying. I don't know if, if they had uh, any sort of protection back then. Ooh, imagine what protection, back then. Yeah. sexual, contraceptive type stuff looked like back here. Probably look like medieval torture devices. I would rather not. Imagine yeah, I would that. rather Thank not you. too. <laughs> so let's just move on. So Ram, yeah. Ram wants to know what is the point of everything? Why can't he leave? Why should he be concerned with how much or how little water he's allowed to drink? All these different rules that he's telling him. And so Lan goes on and says, three drops, sheep herder, don't pour it. You sprinkle three drops only in reference to the water to drink. Um, you can understand later so long as you remember now. Think of it as upholding custom. The Amerlin will do with you as she must. If you believe you can avoid it, then you can believe you can fly to the moon like Len. You can't escape, but maybe you can hold your own for a while, and perhaps you can't keep your pride, and ha- perhaps you can keep your pride at least. The light burned me. I am probably wasting my time, but I have nothing better to do. Hold still. And then Lan continues after he brings out this fringed golden cord from his pocket and tied it around left uh Rand's left arm also in a complicated knot see i don't know exactly what it means but i think they i think they mention it later and land goes on and says i had made that to give you and now is a good time as any that will make them think lan leaves and rand reluctantly follows him into the hall and that is the end of chapter seven Yes, I think that uh, the like the cord thing is is just kind of like about formality and maybe like being like a lord or or right. part of I the. I think that you're exactly right. Yeah, I think it's the lord thing. And the, and because... the red eagle is from Manatharen. Yes. Yeah. Great job. Uh, chapter eight is called "The Dragon Reborn," and the sigil for this is the Dragon Fang, uh, which typically symbolizes dark friends. And it, it basically picks up where the last chapter left left off. Rand is on his way to the Amerlin, and he is nervous AF because he <laughs> thinks that they could be summoning him to gentle him. So he's sort of like panic thinking about how he can get away when Lan suddenly shouts, Cat crosses the courtyard. And Rand like instinctively assumes this walking stance that he'd been taught as part of his sword training with Lan described as having his back straight but every muscle loose as if he hung from a wire at the top of his head it was a relaxed almost arrogant saunter um so he land kind of like put him into that as a way to sort of like it's almost like a grounding exercise of he knows rand is freaking out so if he sort of like grounds him in his body maybe he won't be quite as anxious and he'll be a little more calm and confident Mm, that makes a lot Um, of sense i'm actually learning a technique in therapy right now that is that has the same effect is it the uh what are like three things you can see what are three things you can touch that thing well so the last session i had she she had me start like um doing body scans and next session we have Uh she's going to teach me a technique that builds on that so i will let you know but um yeah it's it's for that same exact purpose so you know makes a lot of sense so relevant still today yeah my 
I learned one. I can't, I can never remember the number. I think it's three or maybe it's five, but it's like, you know, what are three things you can see right now? What are three things you can touch right now? What are three things you can hear right now? And uh, it just sort of like grounds you in like being in your body and feeling a little bit less like panicky. Mm-hmm. It's helped me on on like plane flights when there's been too much turbulence and I'm afraid that I'm going to just go <laughs> flying out the side of an airplane. Yeah, I mean, I don't have that same fear with planes, but I, I have that. I was just talking about I have that fear with like. I have that feeling in car rides where I'm not, not the one driving. If I'm feeling like anxious, that's oh, where really? I get it more. I don't get it in, in planes. I feel way, for whatever reason, I feel way safer in an airplane. My anxiety is specifically connected to me. <laughs> You're going to laugh at this. I can't I'm wait. really anxious about being a spectacle. Like I really don't want to cause a big scene, which I know you're laughing at because you're, you probably think I cause a big scene all the time. <laughs> no, only but for comedic reasons. Only <laughs> for, <laughs> okay, good. But my anxiety on like airplanes is that there's going to be something medically wrong with me suddenly on an airplane and I'm trapped in the plane. I can't get out and it's going to draw a lot of attention to me and I'll like die of some medical mystery oh, on an wow. airplane and everybody will be staring. It's, I don't know why that's my anxiety and it's totally, um, unreasonable, but it, it makes me really anxious in a lot of enclosed spaces where I feel like, okay, if something's wrong with me, I can just like leave the room or whatever. But when you're on an airplane or in a car with people, it's also really bad with like people I don't know. Oh, like for I could sure. care less. Like if it were people who I'd be like, I'm really not feel or I'm feeling really anxious. I'm going to go, do whatever it doesn't matter but if it's like oof if i'm in a meeting room and i have to be like in the far corner where i can't get to the exit door i hate that if i'm on an airplane anyway so i'm concerned about being i don't why am i talking about my anxiety this is not a well you know what you, it's because you're uh you're looking you need an escape you need an escape plan in situations that are uncomfortable, it seems like. And my thing stems from, like, I need to be in control. So when I'm not driving the vehicle uh, and I'm the one that can't control the safety of myself and the other passengers, I feel anxious, you know? Oh, interesting. I prefer to be a passenger in a car. I hate driving. <laughs> I like both. Anyway, so this was just, um, you know, a little, a little insight mental health moment corner. into our... Yeah, mental health corner. Anyway, so Rand makes it to the Amerlin's chambers, and Leanne says to Land, "What have you brought the Amerlin seat today? A young lion? Better you don't let the Greens see this one, or one of them will bond him before he can take a breath." I love Leanne. She's one of my favorite uh, characters because she's, you know, potentially like the second most politically powerful woman in the world. Uh, as the keeper of the chronicles to the Amerlin seat, um, and she's also at the same time like a super flirt, and I just adore it. I I, I very much enjoy Leanne so far as well. Yeah, and if we didn't already know this, we basically learned that the Greens are more interested in men, and you know bond men as warders, and are are kind of like the one of the Ajas that's very opposite to the reds essentially it's been a minute since i i've since i wrote these notes for myself on this chapter like i was ahead doing my homework or we like postponed a couple of times yeah so my my next note to myself literally says hi i am rand but really formal and confident so i i guess he must say hi to leanne in a really confident (laughs) formal way that sort of like sets her back Uh uh-huh 
And she says to Lan, isn't he supposed to be a sheep herder? Like, he wasn't so sure of himself this morning. And and Lan says, he is a man, Lan said I. No more and no less. We are what we are. Blech. Um, <laughs> again, if Rand had any mentor in this series other than Lan, it would be a single book. So <laughs> Leanne starts to usher Rand inside and tells Lan to stay. And Lan, like, quietly whispers, Tyshar Manatharen. To give Rand confidence. Um, that's the that's the ASMR moment of this podcast. I really enjoyed it. I felt like I was there. Yeah, thank you. Um, and so Rand walks into the room and bows to Swan, and Swan tells him to rise so she can look at him, and tells him to have a seat because this won't be short. So Swan wonders how Rand came by the Heronmark sword, and Moraine says that Tam had left the Two Rivers as a boy and joined the army in Ilion and served in the White Cloak War and the last two wars with Tyr. He had risen to the rank of Blademaster and second captain of the Companions. After the Aeol War, he returned to the Two Rivers with a wife from Camelin and an infant boy. And Rand is like WTF because he didn't even know this history about his dad. Like Moraine somehow knows more about his dad than he does. Yeah. Which is so surprising to me. Like, I feel like if you're on a farm, like, what the fuck else are you going to talk about? It's not like there's a new Netflix series that's probably consuming their conversations when they're <laughs> milking goats. But well, wouldn't you think you would, like, wouldn't you think there's so little going on in the world that you would know everybody's story inside now? You really, the thing that surprises me more than Rand's not, I'm not surprised that Rand doesn't know because he's uh, been living his life in sort of, a bubble, you know? And so, yeah. you know, while they're, they're spending a lot of time together, I don't think um, d- maybe if Tam had given him answers about like, oh, what, you know, what were you like as a teenager? You know, things like that, that kind of conversation. I think probably Tam strategically avoided questions and gave him as much information as the, as he thought he needed. And then I guess that's Rand was like, okay, this is kind of uncomfortable for my dad to talk about. I'm not going to really bring it up anymore. I'm more surprised that people in the town don't know more about him because it seems like a gossipy place with the Congers and the, the Conklins or whatever and Sen Bui and everyone has something to say about what everyone else is doing. Um, and the women's circle seems to be very involved in the businesses going on, especially with Nynaeve being in charge. I'm more surprised that they didn't know Um well, I think Moraine, I think they probably do know some of this. Uh-huh. Like, if he was born in the Two Rivers and left to go to war, um, I think that probably some of them did know pieces of this story. Because remember, like, Moraine had gone around and basically in- interviewed everyone in the town. Mm. Um and I think that she probably pieced together his history based on the things that she knew from people or heard from people. Because where else would she have learned this, essentially? Right. Anyway. But then by that same token, like, shouldn't, if that if that's how she learned and everybody, and people really did know little pieces, like, like you said, I've imagined all they're doing is kind of like gossiping and chatting and, and you know, filling out their world. And so you don't think that these people would have like pieced it together themselves a little bit before that, especially after someone mysterious and like um, new came around that everyone was talking about. And she's asking a lot of questions like, I don't know. I just find it surprising. And if people in the town did know, no one like wanted to like be like, hey, Rand, you're going to be a swordsmith like your father. But that Rand, yeah, that they wouldn't have 
like told Rand at some point. I don't know. Yeah. It's strange. Yeah. Anyway, Swan, uh, still talking about his sword, uh, wonders if it's a power wrought blade and tells Varen to take it and test it. And Rand basically is like, no, my dad gave this to me. You know, fingers off. And and Swan basically likes that he has some fire in him and says that it's good because he'll need it. And she tells him that Ingtar will be leaving soon to find the stolen Horn of Valir. And Matt and Perrin are going to go and asks if he will be accompanying them because Matt has to find the dagger or else he's going to die. So after some inner dialogue where he basically curses Maureen thinking that she's manipulating him, he decides to go with Matt and Perrin. And Swan is basically like, great, let's move on to more important things. First of all, I know you can channel. What do you know? And (laughs) it's one of the reasons that I love Swan so much because she is, especially for an Aes Sedai, such a straight shooter. Yeah. Like she's very committed to her purpose. And I just love that those qualities about her as a leader, because I think they're like, you know, integrity and honesty as much as an, an I said, I can just, or feels inclined to just share the truth with everyone. I think are such important qualities in a leader. And so I, I really love her for that. Yeah. I, I, I could totally see that. Rand starts to sweat and stammers that he can channel, but he doesn't know how to do it on purpose, and he'll never do it again. I promise. <laughs> and she says, you know, it's it's wise of you to not want to channel, but it's also foolish because you'd better learn how to do it and learn how to control it, or you're not going to live long enough to go mad because the one power kills those who cannot control its flow. So same, same sort of premise as we learned with Egwene and Nynaeve in the first book like if you don't learn if you hadn't learned to or if you don't learn how to channel it it'll kill you yeah um and so Rand is like well how am I supposed to learn uh because you know there's nobody around to teach me um and he he notes that Moraine and Varen are sitting there looking at him like spiders and I, I don't love that because I think I think how RJ sometimes narrates women's leadership in these books is sort of portrayed as like devious or manipulative. Yeah. And, you know, maybe they are sometimes, but again, you know, Moraine notes like he's so stubborn, like we have to make him believe he's making these choices so that he goes in the right path, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But I, you know, I actually, cause I didn't really get like the devious sort of dangerous, dark, feeling you know the connotation of a spider i got more like weaving a web methodical um Mm. they they know which way they want history to go and so they're doing their best they're putting their best laid plans out to help it get that way yeah anyway so moraine says the the male i said i who could have taught him to channel have been dead for three thousand years and women cannot teach him because a bird cannot teach a fish to fly, nor a fish teach a bird to swim. And Varen, who has been silent up to this point, is like, I've always thought that was a bad saying. There are birds that dive and swim. And in the sea of storms, fish that fly with long fins that stretch out as wide as your outstretched arms and beaks like swords that can pierce. And then she just like trails off as she like looks at the, she like reads the room suddenly and is yeah. like, oh, people people aren't finding this interesting i can relate so deeply to that because i think uh you know i'm i'm one of those people it's like somebody mentioned something that i know a lot about or really love and i just suddenly i'm like blah, 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 and realize everybody has stopped like i've become a 
an adult in a pe- uh, Peanuts cartoon where, you know, you're just like, what's that? Womp, womp, womp. Thank you. Yeah. I couldn't think of the noise. You know, I could also relate anyway. as someone who is often um, giving way more details than necessary when I'm telling a story or um, re- recounting something. And I often will find myself like, you know, describing something that definitely didn't need to be described in order to get to the point of the story. And I'm looking around the room and I can kind of read the room and then I'll kind of be like, um, yeah. but but anyway, you know, the end of the day. Conclusion. <laughs> Yeah. Um, for the listeners out there, Matt and his partner Davy have a- an agreement that I don't know if Matt really agrees to, but uh, Davy, when when Matt starts going off on something, he will look at Matt and say, "Matt, thirty seconds." And the the rule is, if nobody has engaged with Matt after thirty seconds, he has to just stop talking. <laughs> um, I would like to say that a I do not subscribe to this policy. Um, I allow it to be. <laughs> I allow it to be uh, publicly aired for comedic purposes only, <laughs> at which point I immediately start speaking again. But there have been times, yeah. there have been times for sure when, when uh, Davey or one of our friends will say it to me, cause, and, and a few of our other friends have adapted this, that I have realized, like, I should probably shut up. And then I just kind of, like, <laughs> fold my hands. <laughs> I love I love Matt's rants. They're one of my favorite things. So oh, anytime I say 30 seconds, I'm not being sincere. <laughs> so Rand is asking Swan, like, why are you even talking to me and not just gentling me? And Swan replies, because you're the dragon reborn. And he says, no, I can channel, but I'm not Rail in Darkspain or Guar, Amal, Amalasan, nor Urien Stonebow. You can gentle me or kill me or let me go, but I will not be a tame false dragon on a Tarvalon leash. And Sw- he picks yeah. this moment. And Swan gets pissed. And right. Like, this is and the Swan time he's going to speak out. Where he heard those names. Yes. Uh, and why Why would Tarvalon pull the strings on any false dragon? And, and he lies and says, oh, Tom Marilyn told me those names. Uh, but he's dead now. And Moraine just kind of like clucks yeah. because she disagrees with him. And Swan says, you're not a false dragon. You're the true dragon reborn. And he sort of says to himself, I'm just a shepherd. Uh, which, you know, I think is an essential characteristic for any hero in a story, right? Like, they have to not want all of this responsibility that's been mm, placed on their shoulders. Yeah. And Swan says to Moraine to tell him a story. And Moraine starts telling him about the Aeol War and the final battle that was fought outside the Shining Walls of Tarvalon when she and Swan were both accepted. And they were attending the Amulin and the Keeper of the Chronicles at that time. And she explains that the Karayathon Cycle, or the Prophecies of the Dragon, uh, say that the dragon will be reborn on the slopes of Dragon Mount, where LTT died during the breaking of the world. And Gitara Sidai, who... I forget if she was the Keeper or the Amulin. I think she was the Keeper. Okay. Yes, she was the Keeper. Um, she had the talent of foretelling like Elida does. And Maureen was handing her tea when, and this is just a direct quote, Gitara started up out of her chair, her arms and legs rigid, trembling, her face as if she looked into the pit of doom at Shail uh, Ghul. And she cried out, he's born again. I feel him. The dragon takes his first breath on the slope of Dragon Mount. He is coming. He is coming. Light help us. Light help the world. He lies in the snow and cries like the thunder. He burns like the sun. And then she fell forward into my arms, dead. 
uh, I don't know. I literally just got chills at that. Yeah. I, what is going like my, my body just did goosebumps. Weird. Um, all the while that he's hearing this story, Rand is sort of like flashing back to his father's fever dream mm. where in like chapter five or six of the first book where he was describing that exact series of events, concluding with slope of the mountain, heard a baby cry, gave birth there alone before she died, child blue with the cold. So Maureen says, we all knew that you were born on that day, and so, or that the dragon was born on that day, and so Moraine and Swan began the search for him so that they could guide him and protect him. What does Rand say in response to this, you might ask? Again, he just turns the dial on dick mode up to 11 and says, I will not be used by you. And Swan just says... An anchor is not demeaned by being used to hold a boat. You were made for a purpose, Randall Thor. When the winds of Tarman Gaidon scour the earth, he will face the shadow and bring forth light again in the world. The prophecies must be fulfilled or the Dark One will break free and remake the world in his image. The last battle is coming and you were born to unite mankind and lead them against the Dark One. Rand says, I killed the Dark One. He's dead. And Swan snorts and says, he's a fool for believing so. And they're like, you know what? Fine. Go. You're free. Go do whatever you want. We're not sending any red sisters after you. Uh, You know, the prophecies must be fulfilled. So we're not going to gentle you. We're not going to send any red sisters to hunt you down and gentle you. We will let you walk free knowing that what you are, because otherwise the world we know will die and the dark one will cover the earth with fire and death. Mark me, not all Aes Sedai feel the same. There are some here in Faldara who would strike you down if they knew a tenth of what you are and feel no more remorse than for gutting a fish. But then, there are men who have no doubt laughed with you and would do the same if they knew. Have a care, Randall Thor, Dragon Reborn. And my note to myself, and I typed this in all capitals, is they're being so open with him and he's being a dick and not trusting them. And if he just had a therapist, this would all be solved. I'm telling you, it's so like, I also love how Swan is being with him because in my mind, Rand is, is saying these things thinking I'm standing up for myself. They're not going to expect this of me. I'm standing up for myself. I'm not speaking the way Lan told me to. You know, I'm not going to be a pawn in their game. You know, like he's standing up for himself and she's just completely unfazed. He thinks that he's like, you know, stepping out of line and there are going to be gasps in the crowd. And she's just like, yeah, you know, it's going to happen. You know, you are made for a purpose. So it's, it's just time to get in line, basically. Yeah. Um. So anyway, so he leaves the room saying, I will not be used. And then we get a... a uh, shift in perspective to the Aes Sedai after he walks out of the room and they're like sweating and anxious at how that went and so we see that even through their confidence they're really nervous about a man who can channel and they're also really kind of mm, nervous about Rand's stubbornness and his will and then we get a POV shift to Nynaeve and she says she's feel she's just kind of thinking to herself that she feels a storm coming, but it's not an actual storm storm. And she spots Rand and thinks, well, if there was a storm that's not a storm, he would be at the center of it. <laughs> uh, and she's worried about what the Aes Sedai have done to him because she thinks, you know, she's continually thinking to herself that she should have gotten him away from Moraine. And so she dashes after him, uh, but loses him and instead comes upon Lan. Uh. And... She thinks to herself that she ought to dose herself with rannel and sheep's tongue root, an awful tasting concoction when people are basically just being ridiculous. 
I love that idea of like people who are just being nonsense and there's just something that tastes awful that they're like, oh, you know what the medicine is for this? Something that tastes awful and does nothing. Yeah, it's, it's like so, her way of grounding people back to reality. <laughs> yes, it's not like, as you know, gentle taking a as spoonful like a, of, yeah. yeah, like a cod liver oil type thing. Yeah. So Lan calls out to her and she basically says, like, we've said all we need to say to each other. And he basically reiterates that he cannot gift a woman a widow's clothes as a bride price. And she's like, great, I don't care. Have you seen Rand? And he says, the Dark One take Randall Thor and the Amarillan seat both. Um, pressing something into her hand. I will make you a gift and you will take it if I have to chain it around your neck. And it's his signet ring with the crane and the ring. It's the ring of Malkieri Kings. And she tries to say she can't take it. And he's like, oh, it's nothing. It's old and useless. But some people will protect it to you if you show it to them. Show it to a warder and he will give you aid or carry a message to me. Send it to me or a message marked with it and I will come to you without delay and without fail. This I swear. Beautiful. And she starts to get misty-eyed mm-hmm. because he's being sweet. I love it so much. Um, and she thinks to herself that if if I cry now, I'll have to kill myself. <laughs> and uh, she says, I can't. I do not want a gift from you, Alan Mandragoran. Take it. But he refuses to take it back and says, take it for my sake or throw it away. But take it as a favor to me. I must go now, Nynaeve Mashiara, which we know, I think we know, means beloved. So he calls her beloved. So cute. Much like Ilanya? Is that? Ianla. <laughs> Ianla. Beloved. Stand in your Not power. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. <laughs> so uh, he says, perhaps we'll have time to talk on the journey to Tarvalon. But then he, you know, turns and walks away. Um, so then we learn Mashiara means beloved of heart and soul, but it also means a love lost, a love lost beyond regaining. Uh, Tragic. Uh, so Nynaeve calls herself a fool and turns herself to, turns around to find herself face to face with Moraine and is like, oh my God, how long have you been standing there? Because if there's anything that would just cause Nynaeve to like melt into the crust of the earth, uh, it would be being embarrassed in front of Moraine. Oh my God. Especially by Lan. As, oh, a hundred percent. And so she's like, how long have you been there? What did you hear? And Maureen is like, I've been here. I haven't been here long enough to hear anything I shouldn't have heard, which is not an answer. Not at all. And and tells her to go pack because they're going to be leaving soon. And Maureen, or sorry, Nynaeve says, I should have gotten the boys away from you. And Egwene too, if I could do it without killing her. Um, okay, so she's saying, I should have also gotten Egwene from you. She shouldn't be going to Tarbalon, blah, blah, blah. And Maureen is like, well, she has to go to Tarvalon unless you want her to die. And uh, you could also learn to channel, or have you decided to forego Tarvalon? And then says, but if you don't learn to use the power, you'll never be able to use it against me. <laughs> and so, and, Ni- and it catches Nynaeve, like, completely off guard and is like, I don't know what you mean by that. I don't know what you're talking about. I would never, like, do you, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean I would want to use the power against you? What are you talking about? And Maureen is like, did you think I did not know, child? Well, as you wish it, I take that you are coming to Tarvalon. Yes, I thought so. Uh. And RJ writes that Nynaeve just wanted to hit her and knock away the brief smile that had flashed across Moraine's face. Uh, anyway. I just love incredible. this scene I love, so much. It's so good. The interactions between them are priceless. Priceless. Um, so then we get our, our, I think, our last point of view shift. And we're with Egwene now. 
and she's packing all the beautiful dresses that were gifts from the Lady Amalisa. And Nynaeve pokes her head in and says, like, come on, we're leaving shortly. And she's wearing blue silk with red lover's knots on the bosom. And Egwene talks about leaving and calls Nynaeve wisdom. And Nynaeve says, I don't think you should call that call me that anymore. You know, you're a woman now. We're two women a long way from Emmonsfield, and it will be longer still before we see home. You should just call me Nynaeve. And Egwene says, we will see home again, Nynaeve. We will. And Nynaeve says, don't try to comfort the wisdom, girl. And like, as like a joking gruffness. (laughs) And then a servant comes in and says, is like panicked and is like, hey, there's some guy who's trying to get into the women's apartments to see Egwene. So if you could like come out and see him because people are freaking out. And so they walk out and find Rand and Egwene asks him what the Amerlin had wanted with him. And he's like, nothing important. (laughs) Again, because as we've learned... Obviously, nobody trusts anyone. It's pitiful. Egwene calls him a giant dumb ox, which is accurate. 100%. And says that she'll become Aes Sedai because she wants to find a way to help him. And he says, the next time you see me, you'll likely want to gentle me. And she says, watch your tongue, because if you don't, I will not be able to help you. Do you want everyone to know? And she starts to cry. And he tells her to promise him that she won't pick Red Aja. And he murmurs that he's, he loves her as they hug and then turns and storms away. And the servant comes to collect Egwene because they're also leaving and scrubbing her cheeks. Egwene follows the other woman and says, take care of yourself, you wool-headed lummox. Light, take care of him. And that's the end of the chapter. Oh, that was a great way to end the chapter with that part because it just... I know. It was like a really sincere moment between... Egwene and Rand for once, and I don't know. Yeah, they're actually talking to each other. Yeah, and Rand is actually talking to her at the end of it like an equal. Not the beginning, obviously, but like as a, you know? Yeah. He's making himself vulnerable. He thinks, but at the same time, it might be the last time he sees her in his mind, you know? So uh, all these like goodbyes are so, so heavy. Um, What was your favorite so- part? Oh, gosh, good question. I think my favorite part, again, I really like the humanity of the very powerful and proper characters. That's one of the things that I like most about this series is seeing, again, like the people who have a ton of power, either politically or, or you know, in, in physical strength or channeling or whatever, how they, how they're human and how their flaws uh, influence the way they handle those, those strengths or those powers. And so I think my favorite moment is, is probably the interaction between Rand and Varen and Swan and Moraine. Mm. But then those just like two paragraphs that we get when he walks out of the room of them like sighing in relief and feeling sweaty because they weren't sure how that was going to go. And they know how much is resting on him in in the fate of the world. And so they're they're anxious and they're trying to do what's best and they're to them or to him they seem so composed and proper and you know um all knowing like they're trying to manipulate him into doing something and they're all knowing and to when we get to their perspective they're like woof like you know swipe the sweat off my brow that went i i guess as well as it could have but man that guy is stubborn da 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 like i just i really like that humanity of the of of the characters yeah, I I love that too. What about you? I would say my my favorite part is is related to the same reason for for why you like your parts. Where my favorite part is the exchange between Nynaeve and um, Moraine 
as well as the mm. exchange between honestly all the like the private one-on-one exchanges that happen in my chapter and your chapter uh but particularly the ones with Nynaeve and Lan and the one with Nynaeve and Moraine um and the one with <laughs> Nynaeve yeah. and Egwene so all Nynaeve ones it just the reason yeah. I like them yeah. is because I think Robert Jordan has a really skilled way of writing human nature and the way they interact with one another. Um, I love the Mm -hmm. way you can see through the books and through the chapters, the slow progression of how these relationships are forming among this main party. Yeah. And like, there's so many different dynamics when you like pair them up or even trio them off or whatever. And it's mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. all handled so delicately and so realistically. Like the reason I like the naive ones so much is because they just show such radical shifts in in my opinion in the way they're interacting with one another and their like level of um, comfort with one another. So like with her and Lan, like they're talking about something they were silent about for so long and only had one mm-hmm. that we know of interaction about it, and it could have been done, but now they're like past that now, or at least naive in her mind is like, I'm past that. I'm trying to get over this. And this is how we interact now, you know? And now she's like, I don't want anything from you if I can't have you sort of thing, you know? So you see this like shift in her there. And then the way her and Moraine interact with one another, I love how Moraine is getting more, her rapport with, with naive is more like yeah. frenemy, you know? Yes, it's very frenemy. It's very frenemy versus like I'm all knowing and I'm not going to entertain this and I'm just going to kind of ignore you and and taunt you. Now it's like a sly smile, uh, an offhand remark. You just get like this, like mm-hmm. more back and forth. And then again with Nynaeve and Egwene, you just see how they are growing and how they're accepting their fates in different at different um, rates and at different um, mm-hmm. levels. I just think it's so. Yeah, those exchanges are just so. I just think this shows so much progression in the characters, and that's that's my favorite parts. Yeah. yeah, I love those parts too. Well, you can email us at coolstorypod at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet us on Twitter at coolstorypod1, and you can follow us on Instagram at coolstorypod. Yes, please um, find us on any of the platforms where you like to listen to podcasts. We're pretty much on all of them. And if you could take a minute to... Uh, like our podcast, subscribe, to um, review, to rate us, anything, send us feedback. It would be much appreciated. Um, if you like what we're doing, we want to keep doing it. So help us out. Get involved. That's right. And if you don't like what we're doing, keep it to yourself. Sorry. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Just kidding. Tell us that too. Tell us that too. Yeah. Bye. Right, bye. Bye.